During the course of this morning, I've already decided to change my career four times. <laughs> I'm going to get a journalism degree, do brain research, get a truck that, with newspapers, and go to Canada. <laughs> and I don't know what's on store for me later. Uh, let me just state a little bit. Before I became a director of a laboratory, uh, I was a, an honest scientist and a teacher. And I taught uh, and did research in, uh, in a way which is fairly normal for scientists. Uh, it might be interesting to know why, why one uh, motivates a research scientist. What is it? Is it curiosity? Is it ego? Is it a uh, deep uh, cultural or intuitive thing? You must do this. Uh, what's the payoff? Sometimes in doing a, an experiment, uh, you, uh, you lose sleep. You go for many days uh, napping at a cot, missing meals, uh, dropping all other obligations, and uh, you're tired. And then, once in a while, it happens occasionally. Uh, usually it happens at 3 in the morning. You're uh, sort of red-eyed and uh, uh, drinking coffee from an eight-day-old coffee pot. Uh, then you see some lights on a screen, and you look at the computer output. You cross-check it. And suddenly, it dawns on you that you've learned something that nobody else in the world knows, not one of four billion people knows this fact, and it's an important fact, a fact that may play a fundamental role in uh, human thinking. And that feeling, uh, that uh, awareness, is a reward which is very, very difficult to describe in any more detail. Of course, that doesn't sustain you, because in the life of an average scientist, it may happen no times at all. It may happen once. If you're very lucky, it may happen several times. And there are other things, of course, that uh, sustain you. There's the fact that you actually enjoy the day-to-day uh, activities. You might even enjoy reading of the discovery of a colleague, uh, something you would have liked to have made. Uh, and uh, after getting over the uh, competitive uh, frustration, you say, gee, this is really a beautiful piece of work. Another thing that sustains you is the teaching. That's part of it. And teaching uh, runs the gamut. I uh, generally prefer to teach undergraduates, uh, where I was at Columbia University, and that's just wonderful, the interchange. Big class. Hey, Red, wake up that kid sleeping next to you. He says, why should I teach? You put him to sleep. <laughs> or uh, graduate students. I've had more than 50 students get their PhDs under me in the last years. I've probably written more than 25 PhD theses, largely because when I get the draft, it's awful. And so there's one piece of advice. Please learn how to write English. I mean, somebody mentioned earlier today that he was invited to parties because he was good at mixing metaphors. How's this? This field of physics is so virginal that no human eyeball has ever set foot. <laughs> Point Leroy, I'll explain to him, you can't do it that way. Well, anyway, so you do, you write it over. Uh, teaching and the, uh, is, is a very important part of this. Now, what is it? 
I mean, this sounded uh, very awe-inspiring, what you heard. Uh, in fact, what we are trying to do at Fermilab and sister laboratories around the world is address what seems to be exotic questions. What we do really is, uh, at an accelerator laboratory, we are a space traveling. We don't have the TV coverage of NASA, much to my regret, but we are traveling in space. It's not outer space, it's inner space. In a, metaphorically speaking, our scientists will enter a capsule and go down in size. They'll literally, not literally, they will in their intellectually travel into the domain of the small. They'll go down, down, so that a dense block of heavy metal will appear porous, and suddenly you'll realize that it's mostly empty space. They'll go down even further, and they'll pass the large macromolecules that so fascinate the biologists. They will go uh, even further down until the atoms look enormous and clouds of electrons swish around and then they'll focus on the nucleus and they'll bore inside the nucleus. Each time you go another stage down and unpeel another layer of matter, you need a more powerful accelerator. That's the way it goes. Finally, you get down to the constituents of what's inside the nucleus, the protons and neutrons. But we don't understand their structure. There's something wrong. It's not simple enough. It's not elegant. So we go down even further into things which are whimsically called quarks and leptons. And so today, most of my colleagues are in a state of enormous excitement. We believe that we're beginning to understand the basic ingredients, the fundamental components out of which all matter is made. And what's more exciting is that occasionally uh, we talk to our colleagues that go the other way. They go to outer space. They go there uh, in capsules. They go there with instruments. They go there with enormously sensitive radio telescopes. And they're beginning to see the structure of the universe as it was in the first fractions of a fraction of a second after the uh, first explosion that we now believe created the universe. And we suddenly find that we're both talking about the same thing, because in that first fraction, there were temperatures so hot that matter was divided into its fundamental components, presumably the quarks and the leptons. So the inner space travelers and the outer space travelers are talking to each other and approaching uh, what may be a complete picture of how the world is made. Let me make a comment or two uh, off the subject, uh, which might be also pedagogical, uh, about, uh, about science. Uh, last night, we were treated to an unusual, uh, uh, well, treat. Uh, Edward Teller gave a masterful demonstration uh, of a topic, which is uh, a life-and-death topic to all of us. And what I'm getting to is the fact that, as a scientist, you can't only stay in your laboratory, but you have to look outside, and you have to take certain special responsibilities. He addressed the central problem of our age, perhaps, survival, in a, uh, in a nuclear environment. And his lecture was based on a lifetime of experience and dedication to the security of our country. In addition, he is an eminent and brilliant scientist and a visionary, many of whose visions have come uh, to, uh, to fruition. And now I want to give you a pedagogical experience. I'm up here because I'm also a pretty good scientist. I understand logic, and I even have had a uh, a smattering of experience in national security affairs. 
and I disagree with every one of his conclusions. <laughs> now, how can this be? How can scientists sort of disagree when the logic seems to be faultless, we're looking at the same situation, and we come to different conclusions? And that, I think, is a lesson that I think you have to understand. The previous speaker talked about the necessity for skepticism. And I think this is, this is a lesson and an important issue, not only for the science buffs, I don't worry about them among you, but the non-science buffs, the musicians and artists and journalists and businessmen and women who will uh, do an important part of shaping the world. You have to be skeptical. You have to understand at least what is a strictly scientific issue where scientists can disagree, but after two or three days at the blackboard, one will say, yes, yes, you're right, you're right, I, I agree with you, I was wrong. And issues in which science is not the sole ingredient, but other things are involved. Uh, judgments are involved, moral questions are involved, uh, biases, prejudices, uh, dilemmas of all kinds. And here scientists are as subject to these human traits as anybody else. And I think a central question for you is not to, be not to get through your formal education and come out as a scientific illiterate. That would be a disaster, and it's one of the problems of our country. We cannot preserve democracy, all 200 million of us, if our people are illiterate and cannot speak the language in which important life and death decisions are made. It's as if, you know, the leaders spoke Sanskrit and we had to vote for them and we couldn't understand what they were talking about. So my lesson is, you take those courses, take the math and take the science. It probably won't hurt you in any field you go into, but it might help you make judgments, difficult ones, terribly difficult problems that have to be faced in the future. Thank you.